So we launch today, and we're going to look at the verse in Matthew. So I invite you to take your Bibles out. You're going to open them up to chapter 5. Now listen, you really need to be in the Bible. And if you didn't bring your Bible with you, uh, now you have an app for it on your phone through the, through the one that we just told you about. And we would encourage you to get that out or open up one in the pew right in front of you. But let me read the beginning of this passage. It's Matthew chapter 5. We're going to look at verse verses 38 through 44, but let me start with just the first couple. Here's what it says, and this is Jesus preaching in the Sermon on the Mount. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. It's been used by abusers, this passage, both political abusers, personal abusers, to keep their victims in line as doormats. Some have taken this passage to create a doctrine of pacifism or non-resistance. Um, you've got the Anabaptists of Germany who took this passage. You've got the traditional or even current Mennonites who took this, as well as the, the Quakers or the Friends. They've all taken this passage to give you the basis doctrinally of why you should never enter the military. Is this really what the passage means? You know, even the writer that's very famous, in fact, if you don't know his name, you probably have heard of his book. It was called War and Peace, Leo Tol Tolstoy. He, he even took this passage, he based his book, War and Peace, on this passage. He believed that society should eliminate police should eliminate the military, other forms of authority. He thought it would bring about a utopian society. Listen, when he died, right before his death, he realized that he based it, he, he rather interpreted this passage wrongly, that it wouldn't create that kind of society. So how thankful should we be? Now listen, we're looking at turning the other cheek. So how thankful as we resist evil, should we, be, should we be for William Wilberforce, who brought about, and a lot of other people with him, the end of slavery, or those who are fighting even today against sex trafficking. Listen, there is a resisting of evil. There is a, a redemptive way to fight back that Jesus wants us to get to. So how you take this passage is really, really important. The scripture has nothing to do, this verse, these verses, have nothing to do with pacifism. They have nothing to do with the death penalty. Or whether one can serve in the army or the military. It cannot be used to keep somebody in the grips of abuse. That's not what Jesus was teaching. But what was he teaching? I'll give you a summary statement and then we're going to really look at it. It has everything to do with the kind of love that Jesus expects his disciples to have toward those who are unreasonable and difficult. That's what this is. It's about how you love your enemies. You're going to get worked towards that by Jesus himself. We're going to get there, but this passage is how do you love those who are, are unreasonable to us, those who are difficult, those who are not very kind to us. That's what this passage is going to teach. Now listen, I've got to warn you, some of you are not going to like this sermon. And while I'm going through it, you're going to create all sorts of yes but arguments. 
you're going to get your, your flesh moving. You're going to get arguing. I know you're going to because I was throughout this last week as I'm researching and writing this sermon. This is going to be a very uncomfortable sermon. If you call yourself a Christian, this is not an option. This is a command of Jesus. Do you agree with me? Say amen if you agree. This is a command. <clears throat> Love can show the world Christ. Especially, now listen, hear the especially. Especially when we who follow Christ display it towards those who are evil. Those who treat us poorly. So I want you to look with me. Look at verse 38. Let's start. This is a little bit more of an introduction. I'm going to get into the first of the two points in a moment. But look at me, look with me at how Jesus begins. Look at verse 38. You see the words he uses? These are very important. This is why I want you in your Bible looking at it with me as we work through this. He says, you have heard that it was said. Now look at verse 21. We're all in chapter 5. Look at verse 21, verse 27. Look at verse 31. Look at verse 33. You got it here in verse 38. There's one more in there too if you look carefully. There's six times that Jesus starts with that. Changes the wording a little bit in one of them. But he says, you have heard that it was said. Now what, what's he doing with that? What kind of teaching style is this? Well, let me tell you two things that he's doing. And this is how you study the Bible. This is what you need to know when you're working through the Gospels. Almost no Jewish person could read in the first century. Very rarely could anybody read. They were taught orally. They were taught verbally. They weren't taught with a book in front of them. They were taught through the teaching of the Pharisees and the scribes mainly. Pharisees were Jewish pastors. Scribes were Jewish lawyers. They interpreted the law of God, the Old Testament, particularly Deuteronomy. First five books in particular. So most of them couldn't read. So they're relying on, they're depending on the teachers teaching them verbally. Now listen, here's the second thing that Jesus is doing in that statement, the one that says, you have heard that it was said. Here's what the, the Pharisees and the scribes did. Now, this is utterly important. You must know this if you're going to really make sense of the New Testament, particularly the Gospels of Jesus Christ. What the Pharisees and the scribes did, they're the elites of the Jewish people. They're the ones that were most respected. You went to them with respect already, and their words carried weight. But what they had done was they took the word of God, the law of God, and they narrowed it and narrowed it and narrowed it until they felt like they, they could actually uphold the word of God. They could keep the word of God. They could stay obedient to the word of God. But when you narrow the word of God to something that you can do, something that you can, can obey through your effort, then what you do is you strip the word of God of its intended meaning. Get it to a sense of a type of legalistic self-righteousness. Look at me, God. I have kept your word, therefore I am accepted to you. What Jesus is doing is restoring the law of God to its intended purpose. He's putting the spirit back into the Old Testament. And he's going to get it to the heart 
and the motive. Now, I've got to say that again. Here's what I really want you to understand, because this is critical for you to understand where we're going to go in, in this sermon. The Pharisees and the scribes so narrowed the law of God that they focused it entirely. Listen, I'm not understating this. They focused it entirely on behavior. Meanwhile, here's Proverbs 4.23, above all else, guard your heart, for from it flow the issues of life. It's all about the heart, for from it behavior streams forth. If you're focusing on behavior without focusing on the heart, you're not going to be able to change the behavior. The gospel, and the gospel targets the heart. The word of God is a scalpel that gets down into the heart, separating thoughts and attitudes. You see, the Pharisees kept it up on behavior. Jesus is going to get it back to the heart. Now, you've got that, right? Now, this is a critical, this is important that you understand this. And I'm going to give you an example. The law of God said, and you're familiar with it, it's one of the Ten Commandments, you shall not murder. So the Pharisees and the scribes, and listen, here's what they did. They focused on the act the literal act of murder, the actual behavior and conduct of murder, and almost all of them, maybe all of them, could rightfully say, I've never murdered anybody. So Jesus takes what they had done, they narrowed it down to just conduct and behavior, and then he preaches in this sermon, listen, it's not about the actual ending of someone's life Physically, have you had wrath in your heart? Have you had fury in your heart? Have you been angry with a brother? Then that's murder because that's the heart attitude that issues forth the act. You see what Jesus is doing? And he does it repeatedly all the way through the Sermon on the Mount. He won't let them focus on conduct. He says, no way, we're going to the heart because that's what God sees. That's where righteousness lives. Six times you have heard that it was said. Now look, in, look at their response. There's a bookend to that statement. But I say to you. See, he's not changing God's law. There are people who think that Jesus abolished the Old Testament, the law of God, and changes it. He's not doing that. He makes it clear. Look at verse 17, chapter 5. He cannot get clearer than this. Jesus says, <coughs> do not think. <coughs> excuse me, allergies. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. That's clear. I've not come to abolish them, look what he's come to do, but to fulfill them. Now what's that mean? He's going to fulfill them personally. He's going to live for 30, maybe 33 years, and he's going to perfectly uphold every single one of them personally. And he's going to die on that cross, the spotless lamb, the righteous one for unrighteous ones. Jesus for us. But he's also going to fulfill it in the sense that his righteousness will come into every single Christian, not only in right standing with his Father, that's the theology of justification, but with progressive sanctification as the Spirit of God takes the Word of God among the people of God and begins transforming us more and more like Christ. So he's fulfilling the power of the law of God into the life of the Christian as we become more like him. So let me end the introduction this way, and then we're going to really jump in. I think it's going to be pretty fun, and I think you're going to hate it. 
I don't know how that those two could go together, but they did for me this last week. Jesus corrects, here's my ending on the intro. Jesus corrects the narrow distortion of the law that the Jewish teachers had created. Now listen, and reaffirms the spirit of the law of God. And he shows how Christians, listen, not should live, how Christians must live. Make sure you underline must in the hearing of what I just said. Here we go. Two points, and we're going to really fly through this. Here's the first point. The Christ follower must not resist the evil person. Now already, if you're like me, there's a bit of discomfort brewing in your soul. And if you've already been suffering at the hands of wicked people, evil people, people that are opposing you, even like somebody this today has told me, at their workplace, listen, if you're suffering at the hands of people in an, in an unjust manner, then already that statement, the Christ follower must not resist the evil person, is going to be, begin to get you moving in your mind. Look what he says. Verse 38, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. I want you to hear an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. This is an ancient law. It was found in every, and it has been in found in every ancient civilization. I'll give you a few. It's called the law of retaliation. The Greeks had it called the, the law of Salon. The Romans had it in the law of 12 tables. The Babylonians had it in the code of Hammurabi. The Old Testament has it in three places. Here's one of them. In Leviticus, if anyone injures his neighbor as he has done, it shall be done to him fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Whatever injury he has given a person shall be given to him. It's the original law that made sure that the punishment will fit the crime. But no more. This is a law of mercy. Let me tell you why. If a man got in an argument, in a fight with somebody from a different tribe, here's what would almost invariably happen. The injured person's tribe is going to come back and defend his tribesmen and attack the one who inflicted the injury. So the, and, and it's always going to be a greater return. They don't attack the same way. They're going to increase it. And now the one who has just been attacked, his tribe, will even retaliate further and a war escalates. So this law was put into place to maintain peace and to give justice. Someone hurts us. Now come on, you know. Here's what your flesh, Christian brother and sister, wants to do. You want to hurt back. It's natural. I didn't say good. It's not part of your new nature. It's part of the flesh that's at war with the spirit. We want to hurt back. But worse, we want to hurt back more. Pound of flesh for an ounce of offense. Now listen to this. This is critical. The law of retaliation in Israel, it's not true, by the way, in every ancient civilization, but in Israel, 
was meant to be legally decided by a judge or a ruling body of citizens. Why is that important? It left no room, none, for vigilante justice. You had to have due process. You could not personally carry it out. And this is where it gets twisted today. The Pharisees, the scribes, they permitted... This is what Jesus is correcting, part of it. They permitted, now listen, they mandated, they made it a requirement necessary that the offended person had to become their own judge, jury, and executioner. In fact, they taught that you must return the offense that was given to you. Now that might be hard to believe, but this is what's happening in Judaism in the first century that just means the religion of the jews it's vigilante justice not to the courts you personally carry it out you decide what's to be given and then you give it but god's law an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth meant to bring about justice to stop revenge to not allow individuals to do this but it was turned into individual license and civil justice was distorted to personal vengeance now listen this is critical to understand they insisted the scribes and pharisees that you had to defend your personal rights and honor now that right there is absolutely the epicenter of what jesus is saying i'm gonna say it again they insisted, the scribes and Pharisees, that you must defend your personal rights and honor. And let me unpack that a little bit. There is no evidence, by the way, that the eye for eye, tooth for tooth was ever literally carried out in Judaism. Since, now just think about this, since the putting out of an aggressor's eye, somebody puts your eye out, so you then put their eye out. If somebody put your eye out, getting revenge isn't going to really help your lifestyle much. Because now you likely are going to not be able to work as well. And if they put both your eyes out, you're likely not going to ever work again. You're going to sit at the city gates and beg. So really putting the other person's eyes out was really never, at least there's no anecdotal evidence that it was ever carried out. Instead, the courts created a fine system. If the judge ruled in the victim's favor, the one who inflicted the injury had to pay for his loss of wages. He had to, there's five things. He had to pay for loss of wages, medical expenses, disability that occurred, social humiliation. I'm missing one. I forget what it is. But they had to pay five things. And that was a pretty heavy fine. Yet the problem with all these laws, and by the way, the exact problem with our own judicial system is that it could do nothing about the heart of either the victim or the culprit. The culprit remained self-justified, unrepentant. The victim remained vengeful, resentful, bitter. But Jesus aims deeper because this is where the law of God always was trying to go it aims to the heart to change the heart to get to the rights defending angry vengeful heart and replace that transform that to a heart that loves even the one who is evil 
Now, are you getting the aim? Because now I'm really going to get going. I'm going to give you four examples. And Jesus is going to give us four examples. And I'm going to show you how that works. But this is the aim for Jesus. You've heard it said, but I say to you, what he's doing is he's restoring the law of God away from deeper than behavior. He's getting it to the heart. And he's getting it to the heart so that we, the Christ followers, would learn how to love and show the world what God's love looks like, especially to those who hurt us. But it is not attainable. This actually might be one of the most important things I'm going to tell you today. This is not attainable if you refuse to yield your perceived rights. You know what uh, the author of My Utmost for His Highest, Oswald Chambers, once writes? Now listen, this is shocking. I'm preparing you before you hear it. This goes against American pragmatism the very core of it, he writes this, the only right a Christian has is the right not to insist upon his or her rights. Now, if you're really seriously listening to that and you're deliberating with that mentally, you've got all kinds of arguments that are starting to pop to the surface. I mean, there's seldom any statement that you could hear that's going to give you the the desire to push back against it more than the Christian gives up rights. The Christian must yield rights. We don't like this. And all of a sudden, arguments immediately form. Yet even Jesus, and yes, especially Jesus, demonstrates this yielding of the rights. Of all people who had rights, he gave them up more than anybody. Philippians chapter 2. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Let me tell you, the real language is the form of a slave. A slave did not have rights over his masters. Our country's Declaration of Independence says that we've been endowed by our Creator certain inalienable rights. And among them are the rights to life, liberty, and happiness. You know it, you've heard it, you probably have read it. Yet there are times where love demands that we abandon these rights following the example of Jesus. So we're going to look at four examples of Jesus as he moves us as Christ followers to give up and yield your rights. But I need to tell you one more thing about the word resist. Look at your your passage again. The word resist was often used for taking legal action against someone else. And again, now listen, that's really imperative, you understand that, if you want to really untwist the scripture. And what that is telling you is that Jesus is about to show us that the one who follows him must hold loosely to your legal rights for the sake of bearing witness to the gospel. So let's look at them. Point number two, we're really going to get moving on this. The Christ follower must be willing to yield personal rights. Here's the first example. Four of them. Jesus is brilliant. He is the best teacher that has ever walked on this planet. Here's the first one. Be willing to give up the right to dignity. This actually might be, they're all hard, they're all difficult. This might, might be the most difficult for many of us. 
Look what he says, verse 39. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Now this is one of the most popularly known, famous verses in the Bible. Even a lot of unbelievers know this verse. But you got to understand, most Jewish people, just like today, were right-handed. So I want you to picture in your mind, there's a person facing another person, and they're angry at each other, and one of them slaps the person opposing them, opposite to them, on the right cheek. Now, if you can picture this in your mind, you can already know that that's not possible with your right hand. Going the normal way of a punch. And this is the key, actually, right cheek to untwisting this. It requires a backhanded slap. Which was, in Judaism, a massive insult. Similar to, and I'm sure you've seen movies, maybe read a book about this. Um, similar to when somebody takes their glove and they slap the person in the face. They did that in the old Wild West as an invitation to a duel. They've done that in Paris and in France. Listen, it's outlawed now. It's illegal now, but it's the same thing. It wasn't a violent punch. It was an insult to get the person to fight you, to get the person to duel you. In Jewish law, to hit a man with the back of the open hand was twice as insulting as punching him. Now, are you getting that? They actually find you if you punched somebody, and they find you if you backhanded slapped somebody. The fine for the last one, the slap, was twice as expensive as the one for punching somebody. This was a massive insult. The Romans, the Jews, they made it a prosecutable offense. And Jesus is saying, instead of returning insult for insult, listen, when somebody attacks your dignity, when somebody attacks your honor, when they say something slanderously or in gossip or even to your face and they denigrate you, they demean you, what Jesus is saying is that's the backhanded slap. You are to turn the other cheek. You don't return insult for insult or you don't defend yourself. You don't pursue legal action. You turn to him, the other also. Now we're firmly in the heart. And big insults are small. Your flesh, my flesh, wants to rise up, wants to defend our honor, wants to insult the person back. But in a worse way, we want to do more than get even. That's what the Pharisees taught everybody to do. But look at verse 20. This is really painful to hear this. Look at chapter 5, verse 20. Jesus says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So what Jesus is saying in example number one is this. you got to get to the heart, and you got to follow me. And when somebody hurts you by insulting you or slandering you or, or bringing down your reputation, you cannot return that to them. You've got to trust me. I will defend you. You've got to know who you are in me. And turn to them the other cheek and pursue peace. All right, we don't like this. I told you it's going to get worse. <laughs> it's such a kind pastor to prepare you. Number two example, be willing to give up the right to comfort. 
All right, first was be willing to yield or give up the right to dignity. Now he says, be willing to give up the right to comfort, verse 40. And if anyone would sue you, look at legal action. That's what the word means, resist. If anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. So listen, this is not robbery. Some people think this is robbery. This is a legal courtroom action. Somebody brought a lawsuit against another person. And there's a judge that now rules in, your fa- in their favor. So you've got to give up your tunic. What's the tunic? The tunic was the undergarment worn against the skin. It helped keep you cool. Usually made out of cotton. The cloak was the outer garment used as a robe during the day. And it was used as a blanket at night. Now you've got to understand something about the cloak. Look at this law of God in Exodus, if, any, if, if ever you take your neighbor's cloak in pledge, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down, for that is his only covering. And it is his cloak for his body, and what else shall he sleep? And if he cries to me, I will hear, for I am compassionate. So taking and giving your cloak, that's a really big deal. That's a really big deal. If somebody tried to take it and didn't return it by sundown, they broke the law of God. God will move. God will defend. So Jesus is saying, if someone is suing you for your tunic, listen, give him, voluntarily give him your cloak also. Legally, you will have it back at night, but you're going to suffer embarrassment during the day. Now listen, Jesus is not advocating nudism obviously he's not always speaking literal what he's doing is this that if someone sues you if someone comes against you to take away some of your comfort then volunteer this is what christ followers will do he says this is what you must do you must do everything you can to demonstrate love to that person and you will win him by your love and if you don't win him your heavenly father is going to defend you anyways so extravagantly love and especially those who come against you with ill motives Be willing to let go of the rights to your cloak, demonstrating uncommon desire that as far as it depends on you, you're going to be at peace with all men, and you're going to show them the love of Christ. Now, as you're you're hearing these, and I'm sure you're you're getting all kinds of counter-arguments going on, I'm going to show you that every single one of these Jesus modeled for us. He exampled for us. Number three, third example, be willing to give up the right to freedom. Oh my goodness, this is definitely the hardest. Remember, the aim of Jesus' teaching is to show us how to love our enemies. We're going to see it. Just get down to verse 44. 43, 44, you can't be any more plain than that. He's, He's heading that way. These are all ways that he's teaching us. This is how you love your enemies. And now he draws on the burdensome fact that Israel was a captive people to the Romans. The Jewish people hated that. They despised the Roman people. They actually had a sect or a group of zealots. These are people who really would do anything to be free of the Roman people. 
who actually wore these robes, and they hid under the robe this short but sharp dagger, and they would walk up behind any Roman in the midst of a crowd, and they would plunge the dagger, dagger into their kidney and twist it, pull it back out, put it under the robe, and walk away while the Roman citizen died. This was happening all over Israel. They hated the, the Romans. And Jesus is teaching, listen, you can't be like that if you're my disciple. This is not how you are to be towards your enemies. So he draws on an illustration that happened all the time. In fact, some teach that this happened to Jesus when he was young and a carpenter in Galilee. In verse 41, if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Now, what is this? There was a law on the books of the Romans they gave their soldiers and anybody in authority the right to force anybody anywhere in their kingdom to carry their luggage, their pack, for one Roman mile, which was slightly less than our modern miles. So if, you came, if, somebody, if a Roman uh, soldier came up behind you and laid the flat of his spear on your shoulder, everybody knew that was the signal. You've got to drop everything you're doing. You've got to pick up his luggage, and you've got to carry it for a Roman mile. You couldn't even debate on it. You could not argue, or you would be punished severely. That was a Roman law. And I want you to imagine... Jewish person of Israel held captive by Roman Empire. I want you to imagine the shame and the burning anger that would be in your heart as you were forced to carry the weapons and the baggage of your own oppressors. And Jesus taught that love, his kind of love that he expects for his people will not begrudge that mile. But they'll get to the end of that mile and they will turn to that Roman citizen and they will ask, can I carry it for another mile for you? There was no legal compulsion. There was nothing that the Roman person could do that says, you've got to give me two miles today. They couldn't do that legally. But now the Christian, the Christ follower, volunteers it. The right to freedom is not to be cherished at the expense of love. For demanding our rights has no power to show the world the love of Christ. None. It never will. Love displays itself powerfully toward the one who is unreasonable to us. Look at verse 46. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. See, he's talking about the kind of love that his Christ followers should have. It's gospel love. It's the love of God that's in our hearts and friends. It looks wildly different than that of the unbeliever. It is beautiful. It is powerful. It is impossibly difficult in your power, in your own flesh. But it's one more example of the power that God gives you when you follow hard after him. He's got one more example. It's the fourth one. Be willing to give up the right to possessions. Give to the one, verse 42, who begs from you. And do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Now listen, let's say this right, at the bat, right off the bat, and I'm going to prove it to you. This is not a call to give money to any and every person who asks you without discernment. 
Now, everything I just said was wrong without those last two words. What I'm saying is that you've got to seriously discern every single person who asks you to help them financially. You've got to discern it. And Jesus doesn't have in mind that you give to those who will not work. You enable lazy people. In fact, the, the New Testament in the book of Thessalonians commands us, instructs us, don't give to the person that won't work, but yet is, is able to. So Jesus isn't going to contradict himself. Now listen, this is one way you study the Bible. When you get to a passage that you don't understand, it seems kind of odd. Well, there's always a way that the Bible balances the Bible. You've got to bring them together. So Jesus is not saying if somebody won't work but they can work, comes up to you and asks you for money that you've got to give. That's not what he's saying or he'd contradict his own word. In fact, one man yelled to Jesus out of the crowd yelling, Jesus, tell my brother to give me my share of the inheritance, for our, our parents had died, and my brother won't give it to me. But Jesus would not enter into that discussion. Instead, he immediately turned to the people and began warning them about the destructive power of greed and how it can tear families apart. Inheritance can do that. So verse 42 is not a call to indiscriminate giving, but a call, listen, to generous hand-opened giving. If a brother or sister, James says, is poorly clothed and lacked, lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? Where's the gospel in this? Where's the power of Christ in this? It was cheerful generosity. I mean, remember the Old Testament that moved Abraham to give the very best land to his nephew Lot. He said, Lot, what land do you want? And Lot chose the best agrarian farmable land down in the valley, rich from the rivers, and Abraham gave it to him. And Elisha, the prophet who spread a meal before the Assyrian army that had come against to kill him. And he spreads a meal out before them. So he's, these are giving examples that are extravagant. We are to live free from the love of money. Be ready to share with those in need. Seeing our possessions as given to us by God in order to meet our needs and others' legitimate needs. And Christ demands his followers, you've got to yield all rights to your personal possessions. And you've got to open your hand and give generously are you getting uncomfortable i'll drive home a little bit let me give you some examples have you ever said nothing when slandered or insulted but instead just prayed for that person how well do you tip the waiter or the waitress when the service was not good the world would say you lower the tip or you don't give a tip christ would say you give cheerfully and generously listen if god tipped us god treated us the way that we behaved we would get no blessings have you ever done your chores and then come back to your parents asking is there anything else i can do do you ever finish your workload for the day and then you turn to your co-worker and say is there anything that i can help you do 
Have you ever torn up a personal loan that you gave to somebody motivated by voluntary love? Do you see now how incredible this sermon is? Do you see how weighty it is? Do you see how impossible it is in our own flesh? Because there's nothing in our flesh that wants to do any of those four. And were you feeling overwhelmed when you were hearing these things? Were you getting angry? Were you getting defensive and exasperated and arguing mentally? Listen, if you were Christian, then you're experiencing the collision between your flesh and Christ's commands. You should be experiencing that. I should be experiencing that. Because there's really none of us that live out these four with excellence or perfection. But we can live this way, why? Because Jesus has worked and is working in you and in me so that our hearts are free from insisting on our rights for dignity and comfort and freedom and possessions. Now I'm going to bring it down, i got just a couple minutes left. But this is really, really important. The sermon of Jesus shows us the perfect standard of God's expectation for how we have to live. Look at verse 48. You therefore must be perfect. Oh my goodness, who wants to hear this? As your heavenly Father is perfect. And the goal of God, and this is critical, even if you're not a believer, this is critical. The goal of God is that the Christian becomes like him, living his way before the world to bring glory to him. And the entire Sermon on the Mount, chapters 5 through 7, the entire sermon is meant to create in every single listener an overwhelming sense of spiritual bankruptcy, of powerlessness. Everybody that listened to that sermon, the goal of the gospel was that they get to the end and go, I can't do this. This is impossible. Who can possibly do this? And that question is answered by the sermon giver who says, I can, I am, and I will, and I'll climb on that cross, and I'll take all of your sin on me, and the Father will give all of my righteousness to you. He will make you righteous before him, and then we're going to teach you how to live that way. This is why his very first statement in the sermon is in chapter 5, look at the very beginning, blessed are those who are poor in spirit. They get to the point where they really understand that they are impotent before God and they are in great need. Spiritually bankrupt people who come to Jesus who uphold perfectly every law of who Jesus, who upheld perfectly every law of God, and in the moment of trusting in Him, listen, when you trust in Jesus, in that moment, His righteousness becomes yours, and He saves you. And in Romans 4:22 says, This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. Jesus. It's the best part of the sermon. Jesus, who perfectly yielded his rights, who loved the very people who persecuted him, who was on the cross dying, praying, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. That is 
turning the other cheek. That is not letting resentment reign in the heart. That is doing all that you can to bring peace to those around you. This is the love towards your enemy that Jesus displayed on the cross and the world took notice and began to change. He was insulted and slandered. He was told that he was like his company that he kept. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. He was mocked. He was insulted at his flogging. He had trials that there, where they mocked him. They wagged their nose at him while he's on the cross on Golgotha. His clothing was taken from him, tunic and cloak, and it was gambled away. He's naked up on the cross. Yet he is continuing to love. In fact, 1 Peter 2, 23 says, When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges, judges justly. And he's saying, if you're going to follow me, this is the way you must live. And you cannot do it in your flesh. Therefore, I'm going to give you the power to do it. And you've got to walk with me. And you've got to obey my commands. He prayed for them. He loved them even when he was put to death. He was forced to carry his own cross and Roman custom from his trial to his crucifixion site. The very tree, now listen, get this, the very tree that the Son of God created now became the device for his cruel death, yet he yielded to the shame for us. Christian, we must die to ourselves, deny ourselves, pick up that cross and follow Christ. You yield your rights when you pick up the cross and you love. And not only you love those who love you, you love those who don't love you and actively despise you. That's the power of Christian love that can change the people around you. And as our flesh screams in reaction to these commands that we looked at in this sermon, listen, you got to flee to Christ. you got to get back to the cross, the one who made you righteous, and he will give you the power to live in a way that he has exampled for us. Do not defend your honor. Let go of your comfort. Do not worry about your freedom. Give generously to all of your possessions with discernment, all of these, to even those who oppose you and treat you poorly. That's the power of the gospel. Amen.